Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts, that you draw us more closely to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our calling. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our hope. Amen. Our passage from 1 Peter today begins with the word finally, which gives me comfort. You may or may not have noticed this, but I have the tendency to say in closing and then go on for another 10 or 15 minutes. See, some people have noticed that. The reality is Peter's only halfway through his letter and he says, finally, and I think, hey, look, I'm in good company. Someone who also thinks he's closing and then keeps going for a long time. At least I'm not the only one, right? So with that established in closing, let's look at 1 Peter 3. That was better than I expected. I was looking for a bad introduction so that the whole thing would be uphill from there. And y'all gave me more credit than I deserved. The reality is this isn't actually a finally for the sake of the letter. It's actually just a finally for the middle section of the letter, chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, Peter's been talking to his churches about what it means to live in a hostile world. He's writing to a persecuted church, one that's maligned. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he reminds them that even though they feel like exiles and strangers who don't fit in society, even though they're maligned and mocked and persecuted, even though those things are true, he reminds them at the beginning of chapter 2 that they are actually the temple of God. They're the place that God's presence and glory dwells here on earth. He reminds them at the beginning of chapter 2 that they are actually the very priesthood of God, the ones through whom love and forgiveness are supposed to come to the earth. He reminds them at the beginning of chapter 2 that they are the very people of God, the chosen race, the people through whom blessing is supposed to come to the earth. He tells them these things, and you can imagine many of them who are being mocked and maligned saying, how? How in the world are we the temple of God if nobody pays attention to us? How in the world are we the priesthood if people mock us? You can imagine them saying, I've lost my income for this faith. My neighbors think I'm crazy. They call me antisocial. I'm maligned as a cannibalist. These things were actually said about the early church. I'm called incestuous. I'm called treasonous. How in the world am I the chosen race that brings blessing to the earth? And so Peter spends chapters 2 and 3 working out what it means to live as the temple of God working out what it means to live as the priesthood of God and working out what it means to live as the chosen race, the people through whom blessing comes to the earth. And the rest of chapters 2 and 3 are him dealing with the specifics in specific circumstances. And so he talks about being people who openly proclaim God's excellence, who are willing to tell people how good God is. He talks about being good citizens, what it means to actually submit and honor your government, actually being people who go above and beyond to be upright in their citizenry. He talks about people who submit to their masters and their employers, people who treat their work as an opportunity to honor God, who see every chance they get as a place to proclaim Jesus' name. He talks about their marriages 
about the kindness and the submission and the gentleness that he's working out in all these specific circumstances what it means that they are the temple of God. And after going through these circumstances, he says, finally. In other words, this is merely his conclusion for what it means to live as the temple of God in a world that does not like you and does not want you there. This is his conclusion. And so, as he opens the door to this conclusion, he turns back for just a moment to their internal relationships. This is verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He does this at various times throughout the letters where he's been talking about their behavior towards outsiders. But then he turns and he reminds them of the way that they are to treat one another. For this brief moment, he reminds them what life in the church is supposed to be like. Michael touched on this last week. But the reality is, is that we can only live in the hostile world in the way that Peter calls us to if what happens here is a place of utter security and safety and love. It's like a haven out of which things can go in strength. And he's particularly concerned for this church that's being persecuted with its internal unity, with its love. And you can understand why, because if the church is internally fractured, how vulnerable will people be if they go out into the world with that fracturing behind them? And he calls them to love each other. He lists five things. The first and the fifth have to do with how we think. He says, have unity of mind. And at the end, he says, be humble of mind. It's not that we'll agree on every last little detail, but there is this, there should be this, we want to be unified in mind. We're actually willing to listen to people in the church we disagree with. Try to understand them. Wait. Hear their voice. Seek unity of mind. That's the first thing. And the last, it can only happen, that unity of mind, if we have the last. He says, be humble of mind. The people within the church are supposed to look at one another and say, your thoughts are more important than mine. Your presence is more important than mine. Your flourishing is more important than mine. The church is supposed to be a place where people hold their own minds fairly lightly and pay a lot of attention to one another. Inside those first and fifth statements about the way we think about one each other are two statements about the way that we feel about one another. Peter's a craftsman in writing this. Inside those thinking is a feeling, and the feeling is be sympathetic. That's number two. The fourth in this list, be tender-hearted. We should be people who hurt when others in the church hurt. We should be people who actually feel what they're feeling, who are willing to sit with them when they're suffering. The church should never be a place, in other words, where someone suffers alone. The church should never be a place where someone has to just hold it inside themselves because nobody else is willing to bear that burden with them. We're supposed to have stomachs that ache with one another. That's the second and the fourth. And then right in the middle, the third in this list, he says brotherly love. All of these things flow outward from people who are utterly committed to taking care of each other, who are committed to the end to one another, who are willing to put up with things that need to be forgiven, who are willing to bear burdens, who are willing to actually seek reconciliation. This is this picture that he paints of the church. And he's going to go back in just a second to talk about relationships to the outside world. But it's important to see that this internal stability that he calls the church to 
is a necessary stability if we're going to go out into the world in the way that he demands. The church needs to be a haven, a strengthening place that enables us to go out into a world that does not understand us because we know that we actually have people behind us who are on our side, people with us. We cannot do this thing alone. It's one of the lies of American Christianity that you can do this all by yourself. The image that I oftentimes imagine is that of those little fish in the ocean on one of the nature shows. And what do they do when their predators are coming? They ball up. They ball up because together they can protect one another. Together they can actually take care of each other. And there's something in that in the way Peter talks about the church. But then he turns in verse 9 to talk about the way that we actually engage the world. And what he says is something that does not make sense. Because he says to them, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Remember that this is a church that was being called incestuous. It's a church that was being called cannibals. It's a church that was being called treasonous, terrible citizens who undercut the strength of their nation. And Peter says do something utterly astounding. When they revile you, bless them in return. I know these words are ones that we're deeply accustomed to, and so we just so yeah, yeah, of course. But it is so difficult to actually do that. It's so difficult to actually be treated with abuse and not respond with abuse. The reality is that our world is full of rancor. Our world is full of anger, of insults, of mockery, of lies to cut other people down, ways of belittling others. Our world is full of opportunities to do verbal violence against one another, to abuse people. And in all of those moments, the temptation is to just trade blow for blow, come back swinging. You don't have to look very far on the internet to realize that our world is still full of verbal violence. You don't have to look very far in our political processes to realize that slander and mockery are still considered things that get you power and strength. Peter's call to the church in the midst of a world like that is your tongue should not be like that. Your tongue is to be a tongue of blessing. When people cut into you, you respond with blessing. 
This is what you're called to do. The anger and the mockery that is the basic posture of so much of society. The hatred that fuels so much of the division. He's saying to the church, that's not your calling. Your calling is to bless. To bless. To speak to people with gentleness and respect. Again, it's a command we know, but it's one that we need to hear because it is so easy just to participate in what's going on. But they spoke first. They deserve it. And you can imagine Peter saying, I don't care. That's not your calling. Your calling is to bless. Your calling is to live according to the hope that you've been given. This was the thing that really got, got to me this week. I mean, his point is that you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, being prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. He's imagining people whose lives are animated by the hope that they've been given. And because that hope is so substantial, they feel the freedom not to worry about the things that happen to them in this world because they know that they've banked on Christ and he will come through. And so what does it matter if you say this about me? I don't need to win in the world if I have this hope in Christ. The thing that got me this week is how my behavior reveals how little I place my hope in Christ. I feel like I need to win. And that's a testimony to the fact that my hope is not banked solely on Jesus. We have all these things that flow out of us, whether they're the gossip or the slander, the lust or the covetousness or the little dishonesties to protect our face, all the different ways that we misuse our tongues. And they're all animated by a hope that is that I might be held up. Or they're all animated by a king that is my own selfish self. And he's saying, Christ Jesus is Lord consecrated in your heart. If he's king, how does it change everything else? His hope is the thing that you cling to. That hope for transformation. That hope for his presence. That hope for his love. If these things were driving us, how would they change everything else? We try to mitigate the sin. To deal with the misuse of our speech and actions push it down, keep it under control. And the real issue is the wrong kings on the throne of our heart. The wrong hope is animating us. We're questing after the wrong thing. Embedded in this is Peter's assumption that we will be seeking to put the right king on the throne of our hearts, seeking to live by the right hope. When we respond in the way that Peter calls us to, this blessing, the gentleness, the respect. There are some who won't understand, who will mock. Some who will say that's stupid. That's worthless. There's a lot who will just ignore it. But there are some, some who might say, tell me about this hope that you have. Because there are some who know, who've tried to put themselves on the king of the throne of their own heart and have tried so desperately for so many years and they know that it does not work and there's some who will say, you seem to be animated by more confidence and hope than I've ever experienced. Tell me where that comes from. But you understand that that conversation only comes about if we're actually animated by that hope, by that king on our heart. If what we're driven by is the desire to prove that we are better than the people around us, or desire to get all the pleasure that we can, a desire to win, that conversation never occurs. Again, some will mock, some will ignore, 
But there are others who are desperate for that hope. And Peter's point is they should be able to see it in you through the way that you speak, through the fact that you bless wherever you go. This calling is nothing other than walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Throughout the letter of 1 Peter, Peter will ground what he's going to say in the internal behavior of the church to one another, this strengthening society. And then he'll talk about behavior outwards into the world. But he always then at the end of that reminds them that what they're doing is merely living the life of Christ. They're living into what Jesus has already done. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter's desire at the end of this exhortation to live lives of blessing is to ground this call in the life of Christ that we are participating in Jesus in this, that we are walking in his footsteps. And this final section raises all sorts of strange questions. I'll tell you up front that I'm not going to bother to try to answer them right now. If you want to talk later, if you want to know who these spirits were, where, where, where was the prison? If, if you want to know what was Jesus saying to them when he preached and proclaimed, was it an evangelistic preaching? Was it a victory proclamation? Those are fun questions, and we can talk about them later. But I don't want to distract from Peter's point. And also, genuinely, in a couple of minutes, I do need to close. Peter wants them to hear that their lives are a part of a larger story. This pattern of living by hope that doesn't make sense to the world, you see it in Noah. He reminds them of Noah's story. He waited and waited and waited, and told people the truth, and told people the truth, and told people the truth, and no one listened. That story's been lived before. And in that moment, God's patience seemed strange. Why won't you act now, God? Why won't you show up now? And God's patience is God's patience so that people might come to repentance. He's reminding them that this whole thing has been lived before. But even more significantly than the fact that their story has been lived before in the life of Noah, he's reminding them of the fact that this very story is the story of Jesus. The story of the one who willingly is subjected to abuse and ridicule and mockery, and yet keeps making blessing for the people around him. They don't deserve it, and yet this is what he does. We're called to operate like him. But actually embedded in that story is the very simple statement that Jesus did this, that he might bring you to God. Peter wants them to see that they are the recipients of the fact that God is the God who's perpetually giving himself away, that Christ came to be a blessing to those who didn't deserve it. 
And you, by the way, are the beneficiaries. He wants them to remember the gospel. In other words, when you say, that person doesn't deserve it, I shouldn't have to bless them. I shouldn't have to put them first. Do you know what they did to me? And Peter's very subtly saying to them, do you know what you did to Christ? Do you know what you did? Do you know that he was willing to suffer ridicule and shame for you? Do you know that he was willing to be abused and scorned? That you might have blessing. This is what he's reminding of them in this final statement. But it's not a reminder that says, and therefore, you go pay him back. You go earn your... No. He's already declared in this letter that you have been rebirthed by the grace of God. Everything is new. Nothing earned. And yet, because everything has been given, he says, so would you participate in the Lord sharing this with others? If this blessing is true, if the thing that you've been given is real, he said, would you then step in to the life of Jesus, the footsteps of Jesus, in giving this blessing to others? In the midst of that exhortation, encouragement, and warning, he reminds them as well that we don't need to worry what happens. Look at the very last verse of this. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We don't need to fret the outcome. Christ has won. In his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has conquered. And if that is actually true, we don't need to fret the outcome with a person who's angry because they can't understand the love of God. In fact, we come into that situation with incredible amount of freedom because we actually know Christ is on the throne. Victory is secure. My encouragement for all of us, my prayer for us, is that we would remember what we've been given. That we would remember that when we were the ones cursing, Christ became a blessing for us. When we were the ones who were disobedient in the days of Noah, God was patient with us. When we do those things even now, he continues in his patience. And he's perpetually interested in bringing blessing to us. In that then, let us actually say, the Lord dignifies us by calling us into his work. He places the blessing into our own hands and he says, go bring this to others who just like you don't deserve it. But do it in gentleness and kindness because this is the way that I operate in the world. This is our calling, and this is our hope. Amen.